you see things on Shark Tank, you see a lot of tech startup founders get glorified, like Zuckerberg, Bezos, Google, and like rightfully so, those are incredibly impactful companies, of course, but just like the smaller scale things where sure, you're not going to be a billionaire, but you can make a lot of money. Assuming you pick a solid franchise brand, it is less risky path of entrepreneurship. That's according to the wolf of franchises who we're going to talk to on this episode of the next Simple Step podcast. But since releasing this episode, I heard from another franchise industry expert that debates that because there's not an agreed upon standard of rate of success of franchises versus non-franchise. So individual results may vary. Decide for yourself and enjoy the show. Welcome to the next Simple Step podcast. I'm Paul Goldsmith. If you've ever thought about starting your own business, this is the episode for you because we have on the show the Wolf of Franchises. He's a former franchise industry insider, turned podcaster, host of the Franchise Empires podcast, and we're going to dig into the good, the bad, the ugly. So, Wolf, you're hosting this podcast, Franchise Empires, and a newsletter to go along with it. Where did your interest of all things franchising come from? My first job ever was uh, for a multi-unit franchise owner, super niche franchise. It's called Johnstone Supply. So it was a supply house for air conditioning equipment and parts. So I worked at the warehouse and I ended up making my way into the sales team to like basically work with our clients that would buy hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars worth of equipment from us because they were going to then go to homeowners houses or commercial buildings and fix people's air conditioning basically. As I worked my way up in that organization, you know, we went from four locations to eight locations by the time I moved on. And uh, there was just a light bulb moment at one point where it was a blizzard during the winter, but we had to still show up to work. And I remember asking my boss, I was like, hey, like, you know, where's, where's Bob? Bob was one of the name of the owners. He's like, oh, Bob and Bud. And Bud is the brother, who the co-owners of it. They were like, yeah, they went up to Vermont, like good snow. And I was like, really? We got work. And I was like, do they have a house? And he's like, yeah, they have a ski house up there. And they're like, they're the bosses. Like they own it. They can do whatever they want. And it was just this like light bulb moment that, you know, here I was like kind of feeling down on things because I'm like, got this job, like it's, you know, in this kind of like very unsexy industry, but here are the owners, like they don't care. They have complete freedom of their time. Uh, and, you know, they clearly are doing well when they have a vacation house, they can just pop up to really quick to ski whenever they want. So I just kind of got fascinated by brick and mortar business ownership. And then from there, I worked at a franchise development firm where we would partner with early stage franchises and help them grow to hundreds. And uh, ideally, uh, the goal was thousands of locations. And, and I learned a lot there, too. You had this insider's view of what's possible, how profitable franchising can be. But instead of opening a franchise yourself, you decided to start a newsletter and, and podcast. Uh, why is that? Well, so that brings me to kind of the franchise development job that I had, where for folks who maybe aren't familiar, there's probably like 10-ish of these companies around the country, and they'll partner with early stage brands. So any franchise with two locations to maybe 10, 20, 30 the point is, is that if you own, say, uh, a couple location coffee brand, you might know how to make good coffee. You might know how to hire baristas and make a good menu and do good branding. But the skill set it takes to franchise and then find local operators around the country who are willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of time to open your business. That's just a totally different world. So a lot of franchise founders, not all, like there's definitely a ton who can figure it out on their own or they find other ways to grow without having to use a franchise development firm. But it is difficult to do both. So 
companies like the ones I worked at existed. And that role, I think, was really critical from just my view of the industry because I sat at the intersection of, A, I was helping our company find franchises to partner with. So I was researching tons of small franchisors and figuring out how to find out who exists in this world. And then on the flip side, I was also on the phone every day with sales reps. Uh, So I saw both sides of the ecosystem. And to me, I just thought it seemed like everything I learned, no one was aligning with franchise buyers and franchisees. There's no one just giving objective opinions on franchises. Anyone who claimed to be, you know, usually profited from selling a franchise. And even I was in that position where I worked with five brands and we got a portion of the franchise fee for everything we sold. And franchise buyers, though, if they weren't interested, would ask me like, hey, is there just some neutral place I can go to to learn more about franchises? Um, you know, I was like, hey, like, honestly, there's not like there's these franchise websites that are called directories, but they kind of just want your phone number and email address. And then they're going to sell you to like five or 10 different franchises multiple times, probably. So yeah, that was kind of the inspiration for the wolf of franchises, which just, I know how to find FDDs, you know, even it's not even just about finding them. It's a lot of minutia and, and stuff and legalese in there that you got to dig through. So it's just like, hey, let's just provide a fun take on franchising, a, a way to share this information objectively, right? Like you can just subscribe to the free newsletter that I'm not selling franchises. It's that, but also the, the last piece of it is also like, I just met so many amazing multi-unit franchise owners and I felt like no one is really talking about it as like a viable form of entrepreneurship. You see things on Shark Tank, you see a lot of tech startup founders get glorified like Zuckerberg, Bezos, Google, and like rightfully so, those are incredibly impactful companies, of course, but just like the smaller scale things where sure, you're not going to be a billionaire, but you can make a lot of money. Assuming you pick a solid franchise brand, it is less risky path of entrepreneurship. You mentioned FDDs, which for the unfamiliar, it's a franchise disclosure document. If you're going to franchise, you've got to release all of this data, but you also need to know how to interpret the data and what is sales data and what's actually real. There's a lot to interpret there. So let me ask you, which is the better business, being the franchisor or the franchisee? It depends on the person. And like, I think as long as like, if you play to your strengths, that can be different. You know, for instance, like I had Greg Flynn on my podcast and he owns 2,500 franchises. Uh, they did just over $4 billion this past year in 2022. And I asked him, I was like, hey, have you ever thought about building your own franchise rather than just being a franchisee of Applebee's and Pizza Hut and Taco Bell? And he was like, he's like, yeah, we've thought about it because, you know, we have the capital. He's like, we can do, we can do what, technically anything we want with our money. <laughs> like, you know, they have so much of it. <laughs> um, he's just like, I like being a franchisee. He's like, I don't want to figure this stuff out. I don't want to build a brand. He's like, that's what I pay Applebee's my royalty for and Taco Bell and Panera my royalty for. He's doing over $4 billion in sales. I mean, as a franchisee, his enterprise, Flynn Restaurant Group, is bigger than 99% of the franchisors out there. He could be a public company and be bigger than most franchisors, which is just astounding if you think about that, yeah. especially since he only started in 1999. But he broke, don't fix it, right? He's yeah, got a model that exactly. works. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they're both great business models. I, I'd say being a franchisee is easy. Like, I'm going to say easier in quotes. It's not easy. But the franchisor founder, that's a different ballgame. You are starting a brand from scratch. I think you're getting more into that territory, right, of like the Bezos Zuckerberg and that 90% failure rate where it's tough to start from scratch. Yeah. The first thing is you got to prove your concept. And Mm -hmm. I learned very quickly, as you said, there's a lot of franchise brokers out there that are paid by the companies 
to recruit people to buy franchises. And what occurs to me is there's a conflict of interest there. You've got to find the right opportunity that fits your personality. As we were talking about the difference between being a founder and a a franchisor and then become a franchisee, you got to find the thing that fits your skill set and personality. Yeah, absolutely. Most people, I think, are better off as franchisees, like making a bit of a generalization there. There's, of course, exceptions. It's really hard to start a business is the bottom line. If you're trying to start your own franchise and like be the franchisor, it's just it's a different ballgame versus just picking up someone else's concept that already has some level of proof of concept, whether it's even even if it's 10 locations in 10 different markets, you still got a better chance than starting your own business because it's shown that assuming those locations were doing well and whatever brand that there's some knowledge transfer that's leading to success in other markets and being able to build that brand recognition. Absolutely. Um, Well, I've been fascinated by your interviews on the podcast uh, in particular, because I am in the wellness gym space and you had Jamie Weeks on from Orange Theory. That guy's insane. (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of playing both roles. He's the largest franchisee of Orange Theory. He has what, 100 and something? Yeah, like 140, location. 150. And then in his free time, he decided to start his own franchise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like That man is a machine. I interviewed him the first time around as, hey, you know, you're the franchisee of the biggest Orange Theory franchisee. And, you know, all the questions were about being a franchisee. But then the second time around, it was like, hey, you just started a brand, a franchisor. Right. So what's that been like? And even, you know, at the end of that, I kind of just started peppering him with questions on his like personal routines. I'm like, how do you even have time for all this? Like, it's insane. He's part of the private equity on the Orange Theory side. So that, you know, additional capital that he has just was allowed him to really hire good people and build himself out of the business to a degree. But yeah, with uh, Sweathouse's new brand, uh, it's kind of this uh, wellness brand, right? That they're trying to give like bar level amenities, but also like things like red light, type uh therapy. I don't want to, yeah red light therapy and yeah uh hydro massages and cold plunges like things that you'd go to maybe right after the gym i love it being a gym owner myself sign me up for that maybe that'll be my next acquisition into franchising but settle this for me because there's some debate on whether being a franchise owner is actually entrepreneurial yeah i i completely think if you're a franchise owner i mean you are for one you're a business owner Right. You have a hundred percent, unless of course you raise money or something on the side, but sure. like you own the business. Yes, you owe royalties and whatnot, but it's still, if someone buys your franchise in the future, you get a hundred percent of those profits aside from any transfer fee that might be charged, which is usually like $5,000 to the franchisor. I've seen these takes sometimes on Twitter and it just drives me crazy because especially when you really think of it, like use that logic and kind of push it to the extreme with like a Jamie Weeks or a Greg Flynn who own 140 Orange Theories or Greg at 2,500 franchises of six different brands. Are we really going to say that he's not an entrepreneur? That that's just not, it's not as good as, you know, starting your own company. I mean, it's it's incredible the amount of success he's had. And uh, they clearly have a knack for restaurant operations that other people haven't been able to figure out. It's silly. And even like deeper than that, it, it gets to a superficial point where it's like, hey, who cares like what a true entrepreneur is? I mean, if you're... If your goal is to create some financial change in your life and you're able to do it by any means, assuming it's ethical, of course, but if you're able to do it, like, I mean, who cares if you're a franchisee or you started your own company or you needed to raise money or you didn't need, like, it doesn't matter. It's just the end of the day, if you, if you make, if you are become successful financially and that was your goal, then you won the game in my opinion. Right. But I do think an important distinction is you have to find one that fits your personality. 
I personally need a little autonomy, a lot of autonomy, and want to do <laughs> things my way. Now, I don't need to reinvent the core product, but I do want to put my spin on it about how I do marketing or hiring or culture that we're creating at our location. And But I think of like Chick-fil-A, phenomenally successful, but there's not much margin for creativity. You follow the plan. Yeah, uh, that yeah, I completely agree. I, I think it's it's pretty important if you bought just bought a franchise to uh, for the owners, you know, I've seen a consistent track record where a lot of them started out, you know, location number one, they're in the store of whatever their business is and they, they're hiring people and they're, they get, they do every, they wear every hat possible. And then they know that business inside and out. And it just allows them to communicate to their employees, you know, then and in, in the future um, at a different level. And it also just creates more respect amongst the employees where they're like, okay, Hey, he's the owner, but he's done, he's gotten his hands dirty before. So yeah, with Chick-fil-A though, even year two, three, four, five, for the most part, like I, I have seen that if you've been in the system for a certain number of years and you, you've done well, they will give you a second location. And there may even be some with three. It's a not common by any means, but overall, I mean, you're pretty much in the store six days a week and that's the way they want it. They want you, the, the operator, to be involved in the community. And for some, I think the key is there, like this is another thing is a lot of people will kind of take shots at Chick-fil-A because they say, oh, but like you don't own any equity in your business. Um, it's not a, actually a good opportunity. And like, I get it. Like I'm all aboard for the Jamie Weeks and the Greg Flint's and the Empire Builders. But at the same time, there's people who are owning Chick-fil-A's that it only costs them $10,000 to get into the system. And they're probably clearing 250K plus a year. And that's more than most people would ever hope to make from a W-2 job. So, right. uh, you know. And you're not going to get that as a manager of a restaurant. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I think maybe In-N-Out actually might pay managers well. But, like, that that's also just a one-off scenario. That's just, just In-N-Out burger. Like, right. no other, like, Taco Bell or McDonald's or anything. You're not getting that kind of money. That's right. So tell us about your little entrepreneurial venture. Your podcast is a part of this network called Workweek that spans industries from healthcare to marketing to, of course, your specialty, franchising. So tell me about that business. Workweek's a really interesting business. It's been fun to be a part of. Um, yeah, I, I joined on. I was you know, one of the fifth people in their organization. So the, the co-founders, Adam uh, Ryan and Becca Sherman, they came from The Hustle, which is uh, it was a newsletter. I mean, it still exists, but it got acquired by HubSpot in 2020. Yeah, big fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they were really kind of two of the core team members who really grew it after the founder had kind of did as much as he could. They really grew that and turned it into a proper media organization. But they learned just the power of uh, building an audience, basically, and, and what you can do with it beyond just like ad revenue and, you know, uh, sponsorships in the newsletter. Like, so their whole goal was, though, that they kind of saw this trend of just people starting to actually prefer to get their news and whether it's industry news or pop culture news, whatever, from other individuals, right? Like not these, not big companies that have been around for a while, like these incumbent kind of stale media organizations. So their whole operation is all about finding individuals who have uh, enough knowledge within their industry and then allowing them and helping them grow uh, as like full-time content creators within their own newsletters, podcasts, you know, uh, I have a website. So like they do that for some of their creators as well. But yeah, they kind of give me a lot of the resources so that I can just focus primarily on the content and sharing that knowledge and getting on calls with people like you. And, you know, they're handling the newsletter operations and podcast production, right? Like I don't have to do any of that. I just record it with my guests, 
drop it in a file and the podcast team takes care of it. So pretty streamlined operation. And it's been pretty cool to see how, how big and how, how much they've expanded since, since I started with them. Yeah, I think there's some lessons and overlap there with the podcast. Each one goes deep in one particular topic and one particular genre. So as they say, the riches are in the niches and that's what you all have discovered. That's the whole goal, right? Is just find all these industries and we're, we're going deep within each industry. You know, like I spend my whole day in the franchise world. So even though I am like kind of affiliated, right, with this broader work week ecosystem, but I am very much just in the franchise world. And that's kind of what they want with all their, all their content creators, whether it's cannabis, climate tech, fintech, you name it. They're all uh, people who kind of similar to me, right, came from roles within their industry where, where they were able to learn enough about it. And um, they're kind of just, there wasn't necessarily any big media player in the space sharing content in an interesting way. Your brand, The Wolf of Franchises, is certainly interesting. But tell us, there's a lot of struggling small business operators right now, and that includes franchising. What trends are you seeing within franchising? Is it slowing down right now in this economy? What do you notice? You could see uh, resales potentially picking up, people acquiring other locations. And primarily, I, I think you have a little bit more flexibility with the financing, especially a lot of franchisees just do seller financing. So it's minimum capital down, and it's a longer payback period. So uh, it's more advantageous for the buyer than the seller, admittedly. But also, if you look at some brands, I mean, the price it costs to build is sometimes more than what the actual existing locations would be selling for on the market, right? So, you know, just as an example, like if a fast food brand is selling for, or it takes you like a million dollars to build a new fast food brand, but their EBITDA is, you know, only 150K and they're selling at 3X EBITDA, you're better off just acquiring that for 450k than having to spend a million dollars building it and then having to wait for that cash flow to ramp up. So I, I think some of these factors are going to lead to, again, yeah, less new builds, more resales potentially. Well, that was my situation uh, in buying an existing burn boot camp that wasn't for sale. We went to the owner and asked and I worked out terms. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the franchisees that I've seen that end up doing a lot of resales it's kind of a strategy of where, whether they're already in the system or not, um, you kind of have to hustle to get to the system. Well, that makes total sense. If it's a good buy, existing franchisees are going to gobble it up. That's exactly it. So most of the good deals just happen internally within a franchise system. But I think, you know, there's, there's someone on Twitter who, who I've become friends with. His name is Brian Beers, and he owns about 30 Midas locations. And his father owned a few. And then Brian graduated college at some point, did, was doing something else professionally, but eventually basically like worked out a deal with his dad where he, he was able to work his way into ownership of one of those locations. But then that was kind of it. He like improved that location, really learned about the business. And then he just went, made himself known to all the Midas franchisees, you know, it's networked a big time. And basically just said, hey, if you're ever thinking of selling, like call me. He kind of slowly went to six locations, but he went from six to 30 very quickly through a bunch of acquisitions, largely seller financed. And I think he's really found a good strategy where it's basically like find these old established brands. And so those things are both key because established brand means that like Midas, you can compete with a lot of mom and pops just because of that brand name. Everyone knows Midas in the car industry, right? If you need an oil change, it's, it's pretty common. And you know you could say the same about a lot of fast food brands. I'd, I met someone who did this, this same thing with Wingstop. They're not worried about customers walking in their doors for the most part, as long as the location real estate wise is good, because they have that established brand. 
But then the second factor, right, of being an old brand, meaning it's been around for a few decades, you very likely have at any given moment, right, uh, met multiple franchisees who are either just looking to cash out because they've been in long enough and they want to, you know, reap the rewards of their work, or they're at the point where they're older and retiring. Um, so both those, like those combinations, old established brands are what those kinds of folks that I've spoke to who have done a great job with acquiring franchises. Um, you know, those are the brands to look for to, if you're going to try to do kind of an entrepreneurship through acquisition type strategy. Another a newsletter that I follow is from Cody Sanchez, Contrarian Thinking. Yep. And she talks about this all the time about buying boring businesses. And the statistics are staggering the number of uh, people of retirement age that, you know, they've built this business and are looking to retire, but they don't just want to turn off the lights and shut down the business. So if you can find those people and add some modern tech and do some marketing, you can really get some deals, but you have to know where to find them. Yeah, no, I, I've spoken with Cody. Um, she's, she's doing some awesome stuff with contrarian thinking and even just the businesses she's bought. I'm actually surprised she hasn't gotten to a franchise yet. But again, we talk about personality. She's like, I don't think she, she would probably say this, that she doesn't necessarily have the personality to be a franchisee. And I mean, she's obviously crushing it by doing things her own way. I like franchises from an entrepreneurship, from an ETA strategy, because it's so much more rinse and repeat. You know, like if you're buying a car wash here and then a laundromat there, you know, it's different businesses, different tech stacks. Um, whereas if, like with uh, Brian Beers and Midas or um, with Wingstop, right? Every new Midas or every new Wingstop, right? It's just the same tech stack. The locations are practically the inside is laid out the exact same way. It really is rinse and repeat. Um, so I, I think it's a lot easier to scale quickly. And again, if you go within a, within an old established brand, you kind of have this closed network, uh, where you can get off market, uh, deals to acquire businesses. Whereas if you're not looking at franchises and just kind of scouting around your town for like, mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, businesses to buy, you're kind of just approaching sellers and hoping you get lucky. So I just think you can be a little bit more tactical and strategic within a franchise system. Instead of cold calling, you get some hot leads. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. exactly. So you've talked to dozens of franchisees. Uh, what is the magic number of once you figure out the system and, and buy a brand where you can scale, right? You can hire an area manager that manages multiple locations. Is there a magic number? I, I haven't found a magic number. No, it doesn't need to be 150, but it's somewhere between one and 150. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's somewhere in there. As far as like, yeah, let's at least say important numbers. I've heard many franchisees say, right, once you get to two locations and you can figure that out, like actually it's just two, but you still are a multi-unit owner at that point. I've heard many times that like that was the hardest transition is going from one to two. But once you kind of can wrap your head around those operations and where you're not actually in both places at once, they say like going from say two to six is easier than it was going to one to two. I mean, it really does depend on the brand, right? I mean, like I've met, uh, I met someone who owns 20 mathnasiums and like the cash flow. I mean, he's doing fantastic for himself. Don't get me wrong. But like 20 mathnasiums, if you had 20 orange theories, you're making a lot more than just a mathnasium. Right. Uh, it also didn't cost you as much to build it though. Um, so yeah, it just, it does vary by the brands and the economics. Um, but overall, I mean, you get to five plus locations of any business. You're definitely, you're probably not doing bad by any means. It makes total sense to me that going from one to two would be harder than going from two to 10 because my mentor and founder of strategic coach, Dan Sullivan said 10 X is easier than two X. 
And what he means by that, when you, if somebody told you you had to 2X your work output, you could probably grind it out and get pretty close, but there's no physical way you can do 10X the amount of work. And so then you have to get creative and you actually have to find efficiencies and you have to ask, as he would say, who, not how. And I can see that is once you're at 10, you can't be in 10 locations, but you can drive back and forth between two locations. And at 10, at some point, you're going to have to hire the staff and trust them to do their job, making sure you have the right people in the middle that oversee the operations. And of course, then you get you know efficiencies of scale. When you're buying product, you're going to get it cheaper if you're buying in bulk. Of course, cash is king. You can't run out of cash. So you got to make sure you have enough capital and income coming from the first one to spin up the second one and keep them all going. So it's all math at the end of the day. That's a good point, though. It almost forces you right once you get past two where you you physically have no other choice than right. to hire someone because you're right. Like, I mean, you can try to to do to be in two places at once, but I don't think anyone's trying to be in three places at once and definitely not four or five or six places at right. once. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's what almost like the middleman and go straight to 10. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Or at least 10x thinking. So I'm starting with one franchise just to learn the business and how franchises work. I like starting things, not necessarily maintaining them. So once I have a handle on the business, I'm all about starting new things and continuing to grow. And grow with the franchise brand that works for my personality and is the best business for me. And so I'm still in that exploratory phase. And that's why I love learning from the guests you have on your podcast, just what works, what doesn't. And so we'd love to know any wisdom you've gleaned along the way. I mean, what is the maybe the biggest mistake first time franchisees make? I would actually say um, I'm getting this more from one of my guests, Ben Little, who owns 14 or 15 Zaxby's. Um, and it's capital, having enough capital. So in, in back to franchise disclosure documents, right, they have a section item seven, the initial investment section, which tells you how much money it will cost you to build the location. And part of that investment, they suggest additional capital that you will need for your first three to six months of operations. Because, right, as you ramp up cash flow, you know, you're not going to be, I mean, hopefully you are, but chances are you're not, right, where you're not going to be able to cover your labor and your rent just from the cash flow alone of your franchise on day one. This is if it's a new build. If you're acquiring existing location, you should already know that math. But for a new build where you're opening the doors and starting from scratch, right? That's a big mistake. People just do not forecast the amount of capital. And for Ben, say, in his Zaxby's system, it works out for him because, I mean, it's it's sad, but a lot of some franchisees just close down and he kind of is able to scoop them up because they run out of capital effectively. And so you really got to make sure you have enough money in the bank to sustain operations. And he was saying double, double the amount that you think that you need um, at a minimum because you just need to be prepared for any scenario. And um, yeah, uh, but I have seen that, unfortunately, across brands. It's just uh, people aren't capitalized enough and uh, that's why really understanding your financing options, if you don't, assuming you don't have a ton of your own money to put into it, you got to, if you can tap a lender, uh, I've seen people raise, you know, get scrappy and find ways to raise friends and family money. You know, obviously the goal is to to keep equity uh, in your business since you're the one doing all all the work. But uh, even if it's, even if you got to raise money somehow for your first couple locations, but then from there, you can use that cash flow to like then be the full owner of future locations i mean it's all about stepping stones and right. uh you know you just want to make sure you can try to get into this franchise world and without doing anything too detrimental financially to yourself and right mitigate that risk 
Yeah, the first rule, don't run out of money. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you're kind of game over. It's kind of like if you're building a house or you hire a contractor. It, it's going to cost more than they're quoting you. You do need to assume the highest possible number because things never go as planned. Any things cost more than maybe best case scenario. And uh, and so that's really important to know. So what's hot right now? If you were going to dive in and purchase a franchise, where would you look? I love uh, home services franchises. They're, they're, and something like this, like a side project I'm working on is uh, dis- trying to discover if there's a home services franchisee, right? That is at the scale of like, let's just say Jamie Weeks, mm-hmm. because you see a lot of multi owners and brick and mortar business is, but I've yet to find a franchisee of say, you know, um, a plumbing brand or a window cleaning brand that, that has like reached that scale. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I am not sure why, cause it's still a proven system. Right. And, and you kind of, you, instead of physical location, say in a strip mall, it's, you kind of mark your, uh, locations by territories. And so once you, you kind of hit your capacity for staff and, and customers in the territory, it's like you buy a new franchise and you just got to get a whole new team from that area. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the real reason though for, for home services, I mean, um, there are just a lot of the competition there is heavy in mom and pops. It definitely, for the most part, has not progressed with uh, technology. Like a lot, if you go to a lot of websites, right, um, you probably can't even book, get a quote online or book a call online or anything like that. Um, half of them don't pick up the phone. And again, I know this too, because I came from the home services world that, that to, to go full circle here with Johnstone Supply, where I was working with HVAC contractors and plumbers and electricians. And um, yeah, half of them don't pick up the phone. You know, there's a lot of room for improvement for just basic things. Um, like again, to show up, pick up the phone, be professional. That can be the big, a big difference in those businesses. Um, and it's quicker to cash flow too. You know, I think it's a good way where, especially if you're maybe looking at franchises and you want to get involved, but you don't have the money. I mean, you can use a, a lower cost home services franchise to maybe generate some quick cash flow um, and work your way up to a bigger franchise. And, you know, I've seen folks do that, not necessarily with, I don't think I've seen someone do it with the home services, but just for quick context, quick story on, uh, there's a guy, David Shuck, who uh, he wanted to get the franchises. He was a teacher, didn't, wasn't making much money. So he bought a Liberty tax franchise, which is, you know, uh, still on the lower end of the spectrum for franchises. And grew that to 12 locations. And then from there, he found a way to get into Club Pilates. And now he owns like 40 Club Pilates and he's growing still. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, he was on my podcast early on and said, hey, like, you know, uh, I've got all the money I need at this point. He's like, this is just fun and I really enjoy doing this and, and you know, growing. So, um, but yeah, I think just like that, there is, again, back to like stepping stones, um, mm-hmm. wherever you're at in life, you know, there's still a way. You just got to work your way up and it takes takes a little longer, but it can be done. Opportunities abound. You don't necessarily have to invent the next Tesla or Facebook. (laughs) Uh, Great if you can, but for the rest of us, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I think, you know, just starting with things that you personally use, and then there's probably a company that franchises opportunities in that area. There's so many different businesses. It always blows my mind. I covered a pizza franchise and one brand I'd never really heard of called Pizza Guys. I mean, it's primarily in the Northwest, like California, Nevada, uh, and, and Oregon, but about 75 locations for like a brick and mortar franchise. I think it topped out around like a little under 300K, if I'm not mistaken, the investment, which again, that's that's on the lower end for a brick and yeah. mortar franchise, but 
average unit volume of of 1.1 million on about 70 of the locations and that's that's really solid yeah. like that's kind of that's close to Dom, what domino's does on, a, right. on an average unit basis so you know just the 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 niches that you find like there's a uh crime scene cleanup franchise called spalding deacon and <laughs> i i don't remember the number so i won't quote them but i was i i was the relative to the investment level it was a great return um, now that's a, a job where, or a franchise where you have to go clean up crime scenes. That could mean a homicide. That could mean a meth lab blew up. So like there's could be dangerous chemicals and stuff and just gross blood everywhere. Like, I, I don't know. I, I would, it's not for me, but there's businesses out there that, yeah, I think there's a business for everyone. It's the bottom line. The businesses that others don't want to do can be very lucrative. Uh, you mentioned the crime scene. I did come across that and I said, okay, not for me, <laughs> but it can be a very lucrative opportunity for somebody. Uh, I have a friend right now that's just bought a, a franchise that is a janitorial company. So there is a franchise in any category you can think of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It uh, never ceases to amaze me. And, you know, the cool part is there's like roughly 300 new brands uh, every year popping up that are just starting a franchise. So uh, it is kind of this this never-ending uh, supply of potential businesses to become a franchisee of, which uh, I'm hoping and, you know, kind of trying to make it even more popular because, um, yeah, I just think it, it's an under-focused on area of entrepreneurship where maybe some of these folks who are very smart people raising venture money for, you know, a new social network or uh, the next, you know, some trying to compete with, you know, chat GPT and AI, maybe if they just focused on a really awesome brick and mortar business that does something a little bit better, you can then scale that nationally and internationally via franchising and still, again, have a fantastic financial outcome. So absolutely. Well, thank you for your service to the industry. And for someone who's listening that might be interested in exploring more about franchises, your podcast, Franchise Empires, and your newsletter would be a great place to start. Where can people find you online? Uh, appreciate it, Paul. My website, wolfoffranchises.com. Uh, it's the best spot. You can find the podcast, past newsletters, uh, all my social media accounts. Thanks, Wolf. And thank you for listening to the next Simple Step podcast. I hope you'll share this with anybody that might find it useful. And find me online. I'm Paul J. Goldsmith on Instagram and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time on the next Simple Step podcast. <laughs>